and 2020 holistically um, challenged all of us, right? We were all thrown into stress, challenge, uncertainty. So we actually all now have a have a pretty recent vignette that we can look back upon and say, okay, how did I show up? I mean, how, what, which attributes shined and which attributes weren't? Maybe I wasn't as adaptable as I wanted to be. Maybe I was highly resilient and I didn't know that. Welcome to the Forging Metal Podcast with your blacksmiths, Tara O'Brien and Ron Duran Jr. Come inside and grab your hammer. The fire is hot and ready. It's time to harden up. Let's get to work. The forge is now open. After 20 plus years of experience as a Navy SEAL officer, completing more than 13 overseas deployments, 11 of which were to Iraq and Afghanistan, Rich Devinney joins us to talk about attributes. Since he retired back in 2016, Rich has worked as a speaker, facilitator, and consultant. One of those roles is alongside Simon Sinek and his team to help leaders and organizations create environments where people feel valued and free to explore their potential. Extremely important in today's environment. So we cover a lot of topics with Rich today, as you can imagine, one of which is about attributes, of course, and the recent book that Rich just published on the topic. We also talk about how COVID has accelerated the surfacing of our attributes and what that means. And we discuss what happens to our brains when we step into what we fear and the amazingly positive things that can come out of doing that. Another exciting and challenging discussion today. Get ready. All right, today we welcome another SEAL to the Forge. And I think Tara likes to make fun of me that I have a, a certain fascination with, I don't know, I think special operators, uh, but but really, at the end of the day, it really comes out to be, I'm fascinated by the Navy SEALs, and I'm not alone. You know, you hear names like Jocko Willink and, uh, you know, David Goggins, and even one of our guests, Rourke Denver. And, and the popularity of the SEALs is not just, you know, with me. Uh, I think the public fascination with SEALs is is, is pretty prevalent. And, and so I wonder, Rich, any thoughts on why that is? Why do people gravitate to basically asking all of you former Navy SEALs, how do you perform at a high level? I mean, what, what's what's there that fascinates people, do you think? Yeah, it's uh, first of all, thanks for having me. It's, it's a pleasure to be here. And, and um and it's a great first question because <laughs> because I I joined the Navy SEAL I joined the SEAL teams in 1996 when I graduated from college and back then no one knew who the SEALs were I mean it was I had to, and I learned about the SEALs actually in 91 90 91ish after the first Gulf War and I didn't know what they were and started reading a bunch of books and I said man these guys are pretty cool and the training's really tough and um, and I that's why I kind of decided to try it but. But we kind of lived this evolution. Ninety-six, no one knew who we were, and then we the war started, and um, and of course we had some events in um, in '05 uh, with um, with Red Wings and and Mike Murphy uh, that kind of brought the brought the seals kind of into the spotlight. So people started figuring out who they were, and they started, and then we had some there was some there was some community level push to to get the word out to recruit you know more more seals. So the, the public started kind of learning who we were and what, what we did. And then of course, <laughs> then of course we had Captain Phillips and then we had Bin Laden and then we had um, the, the tragedy of extortion. And so suddenly we were, 
we were top of mind for everyone. So it was weird for most of us, especially those of us who joined before the war, to live this evolution. And I think, um, I think just, uh, I mean, I just reading about the seals and the difficulty of the training and the fact that they they kind of come from the water and they kind of do all this stuff was what drew me in. And I think anybody who kind of sees that and sees it in Hollywood and sees it on the big screen, um, it's just it's just interesting. It's interesting to to see that there are folks who do this stuff, even though I would say the Hollywood version is certainly dramatized and glamorized. I mean, um, you know, there's a lot of stuff that happens on, on the big screen that we actually don't do. <laughs> yeah. And I'm not going to tell you what those are because I want right. the enemy to remain confused. So <laughs> so I guess my fascination is, and I think this will lead right into the, the latest book that you wrote, but, but the fascination is, all right, so yeah, that the, the, I don't know, for lack of a better term, the war stories are... are something that that fascinates people but but we're seeing a lot of you former seals bring this into the business world i mean so so those things that you learn in in your seal training can actually be applied to the business world do you want to talk about that a little bit absolutely well you know war stories are war stories i don't as you know in the book i don't talk about war stories i don't i don't um i don't tell them um and i just want i've always been fascinated with how how you can relate certain experiences in a way that helps another person in a different experience. So how do you, how do you hop context? And, um, and I, I've found that the best way to do that is to take, take those lessons and take them down to kind of the elemental level, uh, because the, the more atomic you can get with these things, the more translatable they become. And so for me, it was, I'm really fascinated with kind of what I call elemental human behavior. What is it that causes us to do, to behave, um, in the way that we do, especially during times of challenge, uncertainty, and stress, because we all know the old adage, it's, it's only during times of challenge and stress where the real us shows up, right? Well, I'm like, okay, what's the real us? And of course, I was in a laboratory inside the SEAL teams that you know, showed the real us all the time because <laughs> SEAL, SEAL training, whether it be the basic buds or, or advanced training is all about kind of challenge, uncertainty, and stress. So, so kind of going through it and then, of course, running it, where I had to really look at it from a, from a different optic allowed me to kind of dive into a, into a it into a depth that I hadn't before um, and then cutting out of the Navy I recognized when I started talking about leadership and business and I was talking about high performing teams I recognized that, that there were a lot of businesses and teams coming to me and saying hey we're we're forming these dream teams like everybody thinks the seals are, a dream, are kind of the dream team of spec ops right we're forming these dream teams but but when things go sideways when when, when things don't go the way we planned and 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 everything kind of falls apart the team falls apart too. It turns toxic. So what, what's going on? And I realized, wait a second, that people on the people outside in the business world and, and the teams and the kind of people building teams are having the same issues. And I said, okay, uh, someone should write a book about this. And I said, well, maybe I will. <laughs> so that's really so that's the, the way it starts. That, yeah, that was the attributes, the impetus of the attributes. So. I didn't realize, Rich, you and I actually, you joined the Navy uh, almost at the exact same time I joined the Air Force. You stayed in a lot longer than I did. Um, wow, yeah. Yeah, yeah. So um, uh, you you spend, I mean, you're talking about it now. Uh, you spend a lot of time and fascination around neuroscience, and you talk about it a lot, uh, even the neurochemicals that leaders can help release in their, in their people just by making eye contact with them or deep listening or... Um, you know, releasing uh, chemicals like serotonin and oxytocin to make people feel nurtured and taken mm -hmm. care of, which is really important um, right now as we're, we're dealing with how to take care of our people in the workplace post-COVID. But where does the fascination 
really come from when you're, I mean, were you, 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 you mentioned that you're, you're, you're looking at how teams um, function uh, with the brain, but did that really start in the very beginning of your military career or did it really, the neuroscience kind of take over when you, when you got out? Oh, I, so I think it was a little bit of both. When I, when I began running training and I, I was put in charge of training, not for the basic SEAL training course, but for, a, uh, for a, an assessment selection for one of our specialized commands. Um, and uh, I, was, I was given the task of trying to articulate our process uh, more accurately. And, um, and that's when I began to say, okay, I need to look a little bit more in depth and I need to kind of look at the peripheries of what's going on, you know? Um, and, and that's when I started looking at the neuroscience because again, um, concepts are, you know, our concepts are, 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 are very fun when they're philosophical and they're inspirational and stuff, but, but it's only when you can actually put raw, raw science to it. You're like, Hey, this is why this happens and why we feel this way that people are like, Oh, it clicks in, especially in a kind of a tough guy machismo world, like the seals, right? You're not going to get a lot of the, the kind of inspirational kind of, you know, uh, lofty type stuff through through guys who are very hard focused. Hey, this is what we have to do, and so you have to say, hey, this means this, and this equals this because of this very kind of specific science. And so I I became really interested in being able to articulate ways things in ways that were very um, convincing because the facts back them up. You know, it, it was it it took the it took kind of that inspirational quote off the wall and said, hey, this is why and how this works. And that's where I became fascinated with it. Of course, I saw I was reading a ton and I began to talk to people. And then I got out of the Navy and I, I, I started hanging out with neuroscientists because <laughs> I like to hang out with people who are smarter than me and, um, and uh, asking questions, say, hey, well, you know, how, does, how does this in fact relate? And, um, and was able to start putting that together, which is, which is interesting. I think that makes it, it, well, it certainly makes it interesting for me. Um, and it also makes it interesting for a reader to say, okay, this, is, this goes beyond just someone giving some advice or giving some inspirational quotes or saying, oh, yeah, do this. Uh, do this because this works and this is what's going on in your brain. Yeah, Tara and I share your fascination with neuroscience and how it relates to performance. I think that that's it's fun to dig into how that all works. And, and me being an engineer, I like I like data. I like research. I don't want I don't want touchy feely. I want something that, that I can hold on to. So I think that's that's important. Uh, and so you know, you talk about you started hanging around with neuroscientists. You know, I'm going to say this again, and I've said this before on a podcast. I think this is the decade. I'm going to call this the neuro decade. I think we're we're starting a decade. The 2020s are going to be this decade where we really go deep into what is neuroscience and what does it mean. And I think lending credence to my argument is we have somebody out there on social media that's just become a rock star. <laughs> That has neuroscientists attached to his name. And I, and I just laugh. I want to get one of your good friends, Andrew Huberman, <laughs> on the show at some point. Yeah. But I also laugh, and I would love to ask Andrew this. Hey, Andrew, when you decided to become a neuroscientist, did you ever think you'd be a social media rock star? I mean, he's everywhere. And so, and yeah. I know you're working closely with him, and, and you reference him in the book. How did you come to meet uh, Andrew? And, and what do you have anything exciting you want to share with the listeners of, of what you guys are doing? Uh, together right now yeah he and i um he and i linked up shortly after i got out of the navy we were actually both invited to a uh a, a planning session where we want where the guy who was inviting us wanted to to kind of create um 
uh, a peak performance day for some some C-suite executives. And so he invited a bunch of us. Uh, Andrew was there. David Goggins was there. He and I, David and I were the two SEALs, and Andrew was there. And, and this guy who invited me and said, hey, I, I can't wait till you meet this guy, Andrew. You guys are going to get along famously. And, and sure enough, we did. And I think... Um, he and well, let me ask you answer your question, your first question uh, first. And as I don't think he anticipated when he became a neuroscientist becoming a social media rock star, but he's also uh, extremely dedicated to getting this word out to people in ways that it's digestible. And 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 you all know, I mean, he can explain it in ways like, oh, wait a second, that makes sense because he relates this to that and this to that. Um, and we joke because sometimes, you know, sometimes he needs me to help translate that into, into regular speak, but, <laughs> but he's just really good at it. And, and, and he and I uh, actually gelled immediately on this idea of, of peak performance versus optimal performance because, because, again, we were at this thing where, we, you know, this guy wanted us to figure out how to help people peak, like peak performance, you know, a peak performance conference. And he and I, we, we played along, but we both said, well, peak performance is actually kind of an unrealistic goal I, I shouldn't say unrealistic but it's it's not it's it's kind of irresponsible because peak is an apex and it's an apex from which you can only come down um and you have to plan for it you have to prepare for it you have to schedule it um just like the the pro football player has to has to prepare his entire week to peak for three hours on sunday um we were more fascinated and he had, he he was fascinated in in this idea of optimal performance which is how can i do the very best in the moment um whatever that best may look like. How do we step through that? Because sometimes sometimes your best might be peak and it might be flow stage, but sometimes your best is like, hey, I'm I'm dirty, I'm scared, I'm frightened, and I just all I got is one step at a time. And so in in me, he saw someone who had come from a, a culture and a community who made that made that a habit, made that type of activity a habit. And of course he I saw him, he was someone running a lab studying this stuff and and um and studying kind of fear and and people and people's response and how to step through so we really gelled on that stuff and we began to to work kind of actively and proactively on deconstructing what this means to step through fear challenge uncertainty and and and, and kind of in layman's terms what is grit deconstructing grit what, what does it take you know and what are those things that's that are happening neurologically and what does it take in terms of tools and physiological physiological uh things you can do to step through grit, and so that's where we kind of started gelling, and and um, and yeah, it's been great because um, I'm so fascinated with what he does, and he's so fascinated with what I do, and so that mutual <laughs> respect has allowed us to have you know really really great conversations. Um, and now we've, we've, we're both really busy, so our conversations are less, but <laughs> but but we certainly have them once in a while. Uh, what's the big vision there, Rich? If if you if you could kind of plan out where you guys are headed and what impact you can make going forward, what what's the ultimate vision? Uh, for us, the ultimate vision is to teach people how to uh, how to step through challenge and uncertainty more effectively, and and um, and do it. Obviously, uh, be able to do it when things hit us involuntarily, but uh, but practice it in a way that we can actually then proactively do it. Um, because those who I believe understand how to do this and, and a lot of people who do it they actually do it without thinking they, they they're just they don't know what they're actually doing but they're doing it habitually just like most seals <clears throat> but once you start putting language around it and putting procedure around it <clears throat> and practicing it more deliberately then you can actually explore your potential i mean you know you can kind of i mean potential is always in front of us right it's always about it's not about what is it's what could be you know and so um and so to explore what could be takes a step into discomfort and challenge and stress it's just that's it's inevitable to to, to that's not going to happen so 
So if, you, if our goal is if we can if we can get it out to people and teach them how to do it, and they can understand the steps. They can make conscious decisions in the moment that allow them to do this more more habitually and more more proactively, and then explore their potential. And how do we start with that? Um, so, you know, as I'm listening to you and I've listened to you talk with uh, other people before about uncertainty and Ron and I teach a lot on VUCA. So this is kind of right up our wheelhouse. But, uh, you know, in the military, you are trained and almost to the point of being excited by uncertainty. I know I was the more uncertain, the more thrilling uh, it was for me. That's not typical, though, and I think without training, embracing uncertainty and being able to move forward to find your optimal performance is, is not an easy task. So to the, to the person that's saying, well, I've been through 15 months of uncertainty, uh, it's not looking like it's, it's going to change anytime soon, what are initial steps people can take to embrace that mm-hmm. or at least feel more comfortable in that uh, a discomfort of uncertainty, do you think? Yeah. So at, at a basic level, ultimately what's happening um, and the military, the military trains us to do this, but I don't think the military does it consciously. They, they, it's a kind of an unconscious genius. And the way they really, what they do is they just throw us constantly into uncertain environments. And so we're really training ourselves because it's, it's in fact a neurological uh, process by which we move through it. Um, and really what it is in fact is, is our ability to create certainty out of uncertainty. Um, because that's actually what's happening. So human beings want certainty. We, we, that's what we strive to, to get. We strive to get answers and certain, and that's what we're just always trying, trying to figure out what's going on. And so uh, for those who find themselves struggling, I would offer that, um, that dealing with, so, so let's back up here, you know, because we talk about fear. Fear is really the combination of two things, uncertainty plus anxiety, okay? When you have both of those together, it starts to tickle your amygdala and, and you start going into this kind of fight or flight fear response, the threat protector. Um, you can actually buy down either one of those um, or both, you know, ideally both, so that you can actually more effectively move through it. You could buy down anxiety internally. And anxiety is an is a internal response. It's physiological. Pupils dilate, uh, breathing uh, quickens, things like that. So you can actually, you can do breathing exercises that, that take your breathing to a more manageable rate. You can, you can do open gaze, which, which effectively takes your pupils from, from a focused dilation to, to like, now I'm just, I'm, I'm, um, I'm kind of noticing my peripheries. That's been, sh- been proven to start shifting our, our, our bodies from sympathetic to parasympathetic. Um, and bring us down off of that amygdala, amygdala hijack, which then brings our frontal lobe, our conscious mind, back into the into play. Because we know, you know, with a true amygdala hijack, our conscious mind <laughs> right, right. Seat, right. So the key is you don't allow that to happen. You need to be able to decide. You need to be able to think and and consciously decide. Through, you know, as you're moving through it, so you can deal with anxiety. You can bite down anxiety. Bring your frontal lobe back on on track, and then. Then you have to start thinking, okay, how do I deal with uncertainty? Well, dealing with uncertainty, now that's external, okay? So, so what you need to do is you need to start asking yourself some questions. And you need to, the first question is, okay, what about this environment do I understand? However small that list is, because <laughs> it might be pretty, it might be 10% out of, out of 100. And then you take that list and you say, okay, out of that list, what can I focus on? What can I control right now in the moment, okay? Um, as soon as you do that, you immediately take control and you, you, you form a focused uh, uh, determination to step into, step towards what you are controlling. And when you do that, you actually create a dopamine reward. Um, once you get that dopamine reward, it allows you to then ask the question again, 
And okay, what can I control now? What can I control now? Now that that question is highly subjective in terms of in terms of what that goal you're choosing is, and it could be something a little bit longer term, like okay, I'm gonna I'm just gonna focus on getting to the end of this day, um, or it could be like I'm gonna just focus on the next ten seconds. I mean, whatever that whatever that is for you, uh, seals call this controlling your three foot world. You basically what's what's that three foot world that you're controlling. Um, and that's literally how we do it. I mean, that's what you trained to do, um, and that's why you got excited about it. Because, and the reason why why you get excited about it is because you know that that process, in fact, is really rewarding. Um, because a, you're getting through it, but also you're you're creating dopamine rewards as you step through this. You know, every time we step into our fear, we get a dopamine hit. You know, um, and that's a uh, again a naturally uh, a naturally designed reward system to get human beings to explore, to discover, to kind of move out beyond their comfort zone, to find new shelter, find new, new food. And, um, and so, uh, and so you got excited about, it. you still get excited about it because you, you started to feel what it feels like to do that. You know, I got excited. I get excited about it because I know what it feels like to do that as well. For people who don't know what it feels like, they just simply need to, um, practice doing it. And unfortunately it just means stepping into discomfort more often deliberately. Um, and then feeling the reward of doing that. Um, and, uh, and if you do that enough, you're going to create a habit of it and you're going to find yourself doing it deliberately and, and kind of setting out on those goals that you've set that you've, you've kind of put aside for a while, you know, starting that project, doing whatever that is, uh, talking to that person <laughs> you've been avoiding, uh, because you're an introvert, whatever it is, um, you're going to find yourself doing that because you understand this, this system. We need to cut that last five minutes out and just put that as a marketing, you know, snippet <laughs> for forging metal. Cause that's, that's exactly what Tara and I like to, I don't know, preach. I, I want to emphasize this idea that take control of something and move toward that fear. And, and that depending on how big that fear is, that could be something very small. I know as an ultra runner, I've run 50 miles more than once. And I can tell you that sometimes the best I can do is just take one more step. That's right. And, and so I think, I think it's important for people to realize that, you know, you mentioned getting to the end of the day, maybe you need to back it down. If it's a really hard day, maybe it's just, can I make it to the next hour? Um, yeah. And yeah. so I, I don't know. I just want to emphasize that because I think that's important for people to understand. And I love your real world examples. You know, one of the things that, that comes out of talking to seals is people go, you know, people, I think disconnect from, I'm not a Navy SEAL. I, I don't do those extreme things. And so I'm glad that you said, hey, we can do this and, and just, uh, you know, go ask somebody for coffee that yeah. maybe you find yeah. attractive. It could be any kind of, you know, daily thing like that. Move that needle. And that's actually what optimal performance is. That's that's taking control. That's saying, um, I'm going to do the very best I can in this moment, whatever that looks like. And that allows us to, as individuals, do a couple things. First of all, understand energy modulation, right? Because we don't want to be peaking all the time. I don't need to be peaking when I'm driving to the grocery store. All right, that's that's a waste of energy, right? So I understand when and how I can modulate my energy. Uh, but then it allows us to actually um, pat ourselves on the back for just gutting it out. I mean, sometimes optimal performance is decidedly ugly and dirty and gritty and hard, right? It doesn't feel good. It's, it's, it's scary and all that stuff. Well, guess what? If we're performing optimally, we get to say, you know what? I did great. You know, this is the, you know, I talked to a lot of people who survived cancer and this is them going through chemotherapy saying, Hey, I'm just, I, during those days, I would just make it the next 10 minutes. I was just saying, I'm just making this next, I mean, my friends who've gotten injured in, in combat and they've been, you know, lost limbs and stuff. They're going through rehab. I, I, a good friend of mine who's in the book, Hank, 
um, lost both of his legs. He said, Rich, sometimes, sometimes those days I was just, I was just saying next five minutes, next five minutes, that's all I'm going to do. Um, that is good. That is great. That's optimal performance. And we need to start rewarding ourselves and stop giving ourselves unrealistic expectations of peaking all the time. Uh, because it's both um, unrealistic and irresponsible, I think, from a health perspective. Uh, I mean, COVID, uh, this is a great example of COVID, right? Uh, for, right. for a lot of us, just getting through the next day is, is the best we can do right now. That's right. Yeah, very few of us, would have, the day one of quarantine, would have described our performance as peak, right? <laughs> we were we were doing the best we could in the it's, moment. It's, and that, for a lot of us, like, okay, let's see what happens, you know? Um, but again, it, it's a conscious decision. It keeps your conscious mind online. Um, it keeps that relationship between the limbic and the and the frontal lobe um, solid. Not one's not taken over uh, the other, and um, and I think it's a, a very powerful place to be. Mm, we just gotta manage and and mitigate our our uh, negative self talk with failure. I think that's the big thing because as you're talking about optimal performance, I think there's a Ron and I work a lot with imposter syndrome because we work mm -hmm. with uh, entrepreneurs and and founders. And this is what comes up. And this is a this is a tough one. This is the one that we we find um, with everyone we're talking about. Isn't the imposter syndrome totally takes over? Any any words of of advice there? Like as you're working through optimal performance, how do you kind of quell that? God, I failed, or I'm failing, or I'm uh, I I need to do better, because that can yeah. take over and ruin everything. Yeah, a couple of things. First of all, when you're in the moment of stress, challenge, uncertainty, it's actually it's not a very good idea to reflect in that moment. You have to keep, you have to keep in the present moment, you know? Um, yes, if you, you might screw up, but you have to immediately say, I'll come to do this. I got to do this the right way. And then you reflect after reflection, reflection in the moment oftentimes doesn't work. Hmm. Um, uh, now reflection, however, is exactly what you need to grow, right? So, uh, so you need to be able to look back and say, all right, how, what happened there? <laughs> and, and what are the lessons I can take from that? That, that requires, a, a period of time in between the challenge and stress and the reflection that most people skip, especially high performers, that's called recovery. <laughs> recovery right. is absolutely essential for any type of growth or what I call anti-fragility. Can we actually grow from stress, right? Well, I didn't call it, um, Nassim Tlaib called it anti-fragility, right? So, um, but how can you actually grow from stress? Well, that recovery time is gonna be different depending on whatever, whatever the challenge or, or stress that you've gone through is. Um, it could be short, it could be long. Um, one of the keys to understand if you've recovered appropriately, because that's a question I get, and I know Andrew's gotten a lot, is how do I know I've recovered? How do I know I'm, I'm appropriately recovered? Is um, is to gauge the emotional connection you still have with that event, right? As soon as you are in a position where you're able to detach yourself from the emotions to the extent that you can actually look at it objectively, you're in a position that you can actually recover effectively. Now, again, that duration is gonna be different depending on the event. For some, it's a long time, for some, it's a short time, um, but the ability to recover is in fact necessary. When it comes to um, uh, people who are kind of on the path, entrepreneurs or otherwise, who find themselves kind of always looking back, I will give you an analogy that I, that I kind of thought of when I thought about how uh, SEALs or any kind of any military unit, but certainly how we train on how to patrol. When you're patrolling, you're just basically walking as a as a unit, a platoon to a target, right? And you're usually in a line and you have different positions. You have the, the, the point man who's in the front, you have the middle guys and you have a rear security. Well, when you're training, you actually train in every role. So you're always training how to do all of it. When you're when you're uh, training to be real uh, to be rear security, um, you are, what you have to do is you're in the back of the pack. You have to always once in a while turn around and look at the pathway 
that you've just gone on because you have to basically see it because every every road, every pathway looks different coming from the opposite direction. So the idea is where security is if you get hit or contacted, you're going to be leading the patrol out. So you better get a good view on how that thing looks. Well, when you're doing that, the instructors, if you if you turn around and you and you're still walking, in other words, you're walking backwards, the instructors will will smack you upside the head and and basically drop you for pushups, right? You're not supposed to be walking backwards, right? Because if you trip, if you fall, your weapon could go off, something bad could happen. You're always supposed to stop, turn around, take a look, right? And then turn around and keep moving forward. Well, all this to say that this is analogous to life, okay? You cannot move forward if you're looking back, okay? We have to look back once in a while because we have to garner those lessons. But in order to move forward, you have to turn around, you have to start walking, okay? And if you spend too much time looking back, or if you try to look back while trying to move forward, in other words, walking backwards, you're going to trip and fall, you're going to, your weapon's going to go off. So, so it's always important to look back, gain the lessons you need to, and then turn around and start moving forward and forget about it, right? Or not forget about it, but, to, but just keep moving forward, right? So, so I think some of these lessons can be translated into how people might um, reflect too often and in a way that's actually disempowering. Yeah, that's great advice for backpackers and hikers. Turn around and look at the path. I, I was taught that uh, to, to look back, especially when you get to a fork in, the, in a trail. Because yeah. it looks completely different when you're coming the other direction. And people get lost that way. So I think that's that's important. Um, you know, I wish you would have been my coach uh, roughly, I don't know, 30, 35 years ago when I was playing baseball because – I really believe my biggest problem was, as, as some people have heard, paralysis by analysis. And so, mm -hmm. and I've learned this, obviously, probably after the fact. I wish I would have known it sooner. But thinking about, whenever we're trying to perform at a high level, thinking about it, I mean, we really want to be on a, a sort of autopilot when we're in that moment. And not reflecting, as you say, on, you know, what did I just do well or what did I do not, not so well we can assess that later. I think uh, you mentioned that reflection is important, but but not in the moment. So I wish I would have got that message. Maybe I, I wouldn't be on this podcast with the two of you and I'd be, I don't know, a rich major league baseball player. <laughs> well, it's, it's another another point on that because it's important is that you can't, um, when you're on a pathway, when you're, when you're, when you're going towards a goal, all right, um, some of the very information that's going to give your answers isn't going to become visible until you actually get to certain points, right? So this is where I talk about rock climbing. So I always say, you know, people ask me, what's a, a, a great piece of advice? Um, and one of the things I say, because I learned this a long time ago, is I say, uh, it's always, you have to be resolute in your outcome, but be flexible in the approach. And rock climbers can teach us this, right? Because rock climbers will look at a, a, a face uh, that they're going to climb and they'll, they'll map out a general plan, right? And then they'll, but they'll, they know that, that then they have to start, start climbing. And as they're climbing, that plan is going to change because what they thought they saw from the ground is going to look way different when they're actually at the at the knot hole or, or the, the handhold or foothold. So they're actually just changing as they go. And sometimes the next best handhold or foothold is actually like to the left and down, right? So so that means they have to move away from their goal <laughs> to get a better handhold and foothold to get to their goal, right? Because the information has changed as they're going. So So this is also analogous to when we're uh, pursuing goals is that is that sometimes it's going to feel like we're actually moving away from our goal, uh, or the or we lose we lose sight of the of the fate of the top right because we're in an overhang or a valley or whatever. Um, but that's only because we're trying to find a better foothold and handhold, and we're we're gauging the new information that's come to us that's only presented itself to us because we've continued to move forward. So that's an important note too. Mm. Does that resonate with you, Tara, as a as a former rock climber? 
Absolutely. And all I can think of is, and I know we don't have time to go into your, your thoughts on leadership uh, today, but it, that's what leaders are up against right now. Right. Um, yeah. And I, so I love the analogy with rock climbing. I think I'm going to steal that from you, Rich. <laughs> okay. <on> you. Yeah. <laughs> Let's talk about the book. Uh, Ron, you're reading it right now. I am. I got that bugger right here and, and I'm enjoying it. And yeah, let's, let's dig in and uh, tell us a little bit about, uh, this is a book called the attributes. Um, so let's get to the heart of it. What are attributes? Give us just kind of a little, uh, for anyone that has not read the book yet. Um, what are, uh, how do you identify these hidden drivers of performance? Yeah. Well, so, so a lot of the times the, 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 conflation most make of the performance is that it's all skills, you know, it's about skills. Okay. And I always say, you know, when I, um, when you're in seal training, for example, you spend hundreds of hours, uh, running with boats on your head, uh, you know, you spend hundreds of hours exercising with 300 pound telephone poles and running with those on your children, freezing in the surf zone and all that stuff. And I look back at my career and I, I, I did hundreds of combat missions overseas and I did thousands of training evolutions and never on one, did I carry a boat on my head or a 300 pound <laughs> telephone pole on my shoulder. Right. So, so the question is, okay, why do they make you do that? Um, it's not to teach you the skills on how to be a Navy SEAL. It's to, it's actually to, to tease out some of these innate qualities, these attributes. Um, and so when I started doing the work, I had to d- define the difference. Skills are not inherent to our nature. They're not innate. We, we were, we not, none of us are born with the ability to ride a bike or throw a ball or in the SEAL case, shoot a gun. We train to do those things. We're taught to do those things. All right. They also direct our behavior in known specific situations. Here's how and when to ride a bike. Here's how and when to throw a ball. Um, and because they're kind of didactic and tangible, um, they're very easy to assess, measure, and test. You can see how well anybody does any one of those things. You can score them. You can put stats around them. Um, this is why most hiring processes make the mistake of, of, of assessing only skill because they're very easy to see and measure and test. Um, and you can put them on a resume and you can put them on a score sheet. The problem with skills is they don't tell us how we're going to operate in stress, challenge, and uncertainty in an unknown, uncertain environment. Because in an unknown, uncertain environment, it's very difficult, if not impossible, to apply a known skill. Um, and so this is where we lean on our attributes. Attributes are innate, okay? All of us are born with levels of patience, situational awareness, adaptability. Um, and they don't direct our behavior, they inform our behavior, right? So my son's levels of resilience and perseverance, for example, informed the way he showed up when he was learning the skill of riding a bike, and he was falling off a dozen times doing so. So they inform our behavior. And then because they're hidden in the background, they're very difficult to assess, measure, and test. You can't sit across the table in an interview, for example, and assess someone's level of resilience or perseverance or adaptability. They are the most visible and visceral during times of challenge, uncertainty, and stress, which means the environment that I was in, this laboratory of SEAL training, um, so great because it was all about throwing guys into that situation. Um, but from a, from a human level, this is how we start to understand our behavior um, all the time, but certainly and especially during times of challenge, uncertainty, and stress, right? So, so the attributes uh, I, I, that I write about are, are basically attributes that talk about how do we optimally perform as human beings. Um, and I broke them into five categories, grit, the attributes that make up grit, the attributes that make up mental acuity, the attributes that make up drive, the attributes that make up great leadership, and the attributes that make up team ability. Um, and then if there's a few others I talk about as well, but, but, but these are literally the attributes that start to speak to how we perform in all of these genres and therefore how we perform optimally in life. 
Are they static though? I mean, if so, I'm, I'm thinking of military training and you're right, Carrie, I mean, I did not carry a telephone pole, so hats off to you, but uh, you know, similar, similar um, things throughout all of the military training where it brings out, like you said, it teases out those attributes and I'm going to say strengthens them, mm-hmm. but uh, are they, it, what if we don't have them or what if the attributes that come out are not really the positive ones? Can those right. be taught or corrected? They can't be taught. They can be developed. So a couple, couple caveats here, which thanks for bringing it up. Cause I missed, um, first of all, we are all born with all of the attributes. Okay. Um, the difference in each one of us are the levels to which we have each, right? So for example, on adaptability, if 10 is high and one is low, I might be a level eight on adaptability. That means that when the environment changes around me outside my control, it's fairly easy for me, for me to roll with the flow, you know, go with the flow and roll with it. Okay. Someone else might be a level three on adaptability, which means the same thing happens to them. It's very difficult for them. Now they're still adaptable. It's just difficult for them. Right. So we all, we all, so if we were to line up um, the attributes on a wall, like a series of dimmer switches, all of us would be at different levels, right? Our lines would look differently. Now there's no judgment in that, okay? Because we are who we are. It'd be like judging our hair color. Um, but you, you can, if you're lower on an attribute, you actually can develop it. You just can't do it the same way as you can a skill. Um, so a quick, um, a quick question you can ask yourself if you're gonna determine whether or not it's a skill or an attribute is to ask yourself, can I teach it or can it be taught? If the answer is yes, it's likely a skill. If the answer is no, it's likely an attribute. Um, so an example would be, uh, so for example, Ron, you tell me, you say, hey, Rich, I want to go learn how to um, fire a pistol and hit a bullseye every time, right? I could, t- I could take you to a range and teach you how to do that within about two or three hours, right? That's a skill. But if you say, hey, Rich, I'm, I'm pretty impatient. I want to learn how to be patient. I can't teach you that, right? Um, that's an attribute that must be developed. So to develop an attribute takes self-motivation, self-direction, and it takes a willingness for that person to then step into environments that test and tease and develop that attribute. So, so if you want to develop patience, you have to go find environments that test and develop your patience, right? Having kids is a great example. <laughs> that's, a, that's a way to develop patience, right? So, um, but any one of these can be developed. It just, it, it has to be individually done. So the answer is yes, it can be. They're just, that dimmer switch is a little bit more difficult to move than, than it is on a skill. Yeah, I think you mentioned, this is also fascinating. I think you mentioned on a Rich Roll podcast, which we're, Tara and I are both big fans of Rich. And um, I think you mentioned this idea that we can have, and I'm not sure if you use the word, um, we can have attributes that, that maybe are lying dormant. Yeah. I don't remember if you use that, but how yeah. does that, number one, how does that happen? And, and how do we maybe discover what, what, what are our strengths or what are our attributes? Yeah. Um, yes, we can have dormant attributes and that a dormant attribute is an attribute that we have a lot of. We've just never been put in a situation or an environment that's teased that out. Right. Um, so if you've if you've lived a life of largely comfort and and light or low challenge, you likely have a lot of dormant attributes you've ever figured out. Um, here's the here's the good news is that COVID actually and 2020 holistically um, challenged all of us, right? We were all thrown into stress, challenge, and certainty. So we actually all now have a, have a pretty recent vignette that we can look back upon and say, okay, how did I show up? I mean, how, what, which attributes shined and which attributes weren't? Maybe I wasn't as adaptable as I wanted to be. Maybe I was highly resilient and I didn't know that, right? So, so dormant attributes are those that we haven't seen yet. Um, uh, although I would say every human being, likely every human being can probably, can probably think of an example where a dormant attribute showed up. If, if, if anybody has a story that they can, they can tell 
that ends with the phrase, I didn't know I had it in me. It's likely a story of a dormant attribute coming to the fore that they didn't know about. Okay. Um, and that's usually during uh, challenge, stress, and uncertainty. Mm. So for all the listeners, go out and find some challenge and uncertainty, and, and maybe you'll, un- you'll discover some of your attributes. I, I, that's, what, that's what I'm taking from this. Yeah. That, well, that's when they show up the most. I mean, you can, I mean, things like, I mean, you can, you can see it if you're, if you're looking now, this is why I wanted to write the book because as soon as you start putting words about around things and articulate then people start thinking about their behavior in different ways. So, so you can, in fact, start seeing some of this just in normal everyday life. You can see, well, actually I'm, I'm inherently impatient or I'm inherently patient or I, I'm not as resilient as I want to be right. Just by thinking about it, but it's those times of stress and sh- uncertainty that really kind of kick it in and and it takes almost takes skills completely offline and that's why that that's why that it's kind of so visible right i'm curious uh you've rich you've been out for out of the navy for about five years roughly now yeah yeah um so thinking back on the 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 grit and the mental toughness and the attributes that surface during your time um you know ron and i talk a lot about mental toughness is kind of, we're, we're building a muscle. And yeah. I think uh, attributes can kind of line up in that same way as well. And I think a lot of people, as Ron mentioned, are going through that teasing out their attributes during COVID. But just as leaving the military, when we come out of COVID, let's say, whenever that may be, six months, a year from now, if we don't exercise the the mental toughness muscle, it can kind of atrophy. Is it the same way, do you think, with attributes? And do you notice, are any of these things, I don't want to say weakening, but maybe going back, uh, not being in the forefront for you as you've gotten out of the military and been in civilian life for the last couple of years? Yeah. Rich, um, have you gotten soft? <laughs> I'm probably Thanks, sorry. Ron. <laughs> yeah. Um, so, so yes, the answer is yes and no. I mean, the, so I think of mental toughness as a combination of attributes. And honestly, my, if I were to define what mental toughness is for me, I'd say it's grit, right? Grit holistically is like this idea that can I persevere? Can I push through? Because honestly, that, that invokes a lot more than just physical. And, and in most cases, the physical is almost like down to zero or sub-zero and you're still pushing through. It's all, it's all up here. Um, and so, and so, yes, the answer is yes, you can, you can, you can atrophy in some of those attributes if you are already low on them um, and you don't consistently look, seek to develop them, right? So um, if, you're, if you're naturally high on certain attributes, it's going to be naturally easy. If you're naturally adaptable, uh, you don't need to practice it that much. It's just, it just happens. You just go with the flow. We know people like this, you know, just who just, yeah, they're just fine when things happen. Um, we know people who are naturally perseverant. We know people who are naturally courageous. Um, we know people who are naturally resilient, right? So. So I'd say this is why I get really interested in kind of taking things, deconstructing things down to the atomic level, because if we if we if we take it down to the to the smallest pieces, then you can tell then people can start to say, okay, wait a second, it's not about this whole thing that I have to work on now. I'm actually good at this, this, and this. I just need to work on these two, right? And that's and I'll even be, be even better. I need to I need to do a little bit more with my courage. I need to do a little bit more with my resilience, right? But I'm great on the other two, right? So. Um, so I think that's where I would say people can start thinking. Um, and, and yes, if you are low on an attribute and you haven't developed it for a while, it will atrophy. It's not going to get any better. I think I, I, I'm a, and again, I, I'm not a psychologist, so it's just, it's just theory at this point, but I think, um, I think you can through development, I think you can achieve conscious competence 
on an attribute that you are low on. I just don't think you can, I'm not sure if you can achieve unconscious competence on an attribute that you're low on. I think it's always gonna be something that you have to think about. And in some cases, it's gonna be contextual, right? So, so if you're impatient and you say, okay, I wanna develop my patience and you have kids, right? And you can develop your patience with your kids, right? And you're actually very patient with them doesn't necessarily mean it's going to translate to other people's kids, <laughs> right? Mm, so, yeah, right. So, so sometimes it can be contextual. Like I, 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 I'm pretty good at, at stepping into my fear, okay? And I did that when I was in the teams because I don't like heights. I've never liked heights. So jumping out of airplanes was always a challenge for me. When I was in the teams and I was jumping out of airplanes con constantly, I got pretty good at jumping out of airplanes without feeling that fear. But I haven't jumped out of an airplane in, in mm. several years, which means if I go do it again, which I likely will because my sons or my wife want to do it, um, I will start. I will have to work through that fear again because it's atrophy. Gotcha. Okay, wow. makes total sense. Yeah. That, that that I don't know. That's fascinating. A Navy SEAL that used to jump out of airplanes is going to have to work up to <laughs> to do it again. Uh, well, so. I tell you, the Navy SEALs. People again. This is what you don't see in the in the movies. People think of SEALs as fearless, and we're not. You know, in fact, fearlessness is 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 irresponsible and dangerous. Right? SEALs are are able to do what they do because we've all. Ma uh, in some cases, mastered the ability to step into our fear um, and to appropriately assess risk and then still do it. Right. And so, uh, so that's really where, where that's really what anybody who's kind of steps into dangerous work has done. It's not that they're fearless. In fact, I would, you know, I always say, you know, stay away from the fearless person because that person's going get, to get you killed, right? Because fear is actually something you need because it allows you to appropriately assess risk. But then you need to step into it more deliberately, more. Yeah. I'm so glad you said that because uh, I don't like the word fearless. And I not only, and I think you would agree, not only should we not try to be th this ideal of being fearless, but we should use fear as an ally. I mean, it's mm -hmm. something that when harnessed properly, it's incredibly powerful. Yeah. That's not easy to do. That's not easy to do. I don't know that you could ever get me to step I, I I'm a pilot. I have no desire to jump out of it. Right, right. <laughs> jump it's totally out of different airplane. when you're flying. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> And I'm afraid of heights too. I can I can rock climb like like Tara did. So. No, I couldn't either. I, <laughs> I respect you for doing that. <laughs> let's let's talk about you know you, you said you broke down. You have 25 attributes in the book, uh, and, and you broke them in into, into categories. And uh, obviously, on this podcast, we want to talk about your grit attributes, and those are as you describe them as courage, perseverance, adaptability, and resilience. Now, mm -hmm. uh, this might be a leading question, but Rich, do you think those grit, if you were to put this into a pyramid, kind of like Maslow's pyramid, would you put grit attributes at the foundation of that pyramid? I mean, I guess the question is, without grit attributes, do any of the other attributes even work? Hmm. Boy, what a great question. Um, I would say, <clears throat> I would say for all intents and purposes, no. Um, I think I think those are foundational. That's the answer I was hoping for. However, the caveat is we actually we're in a world today where there's a lot of people who can go through life um, pretty comfortable their whole lives, right? And I'm not saying I mean there's always going to be a little bit of discomfort, but but um, but I don't know if if, uh, if there are probably some people who don't who don't test and tease those as much. But but yes, I mean um, broad broad brush on this, I think the, the grit attributes would come first. And I think courage is the very first. That's why I, I made it the very first chapter of the book. Um, and Mary made it the very first chapter of the grit or very first grit attribute that's required. Our ability to step into what causes us fear is elemental in our ability to operate in in the world uh, at all, I think. How do we develop that? 
Rich? How do how do I get if I'm somebody that that wants to strengthen my courage attribute? Any any advice? Yeah, do things that scare you and um, and feel that um, start 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 feeling that reward uh, that you get when you actually step into something that that makes you afraid. Um, and again, it doesn't have to be uh, extreme, like jumping out of an airplane right away. Uh, it could be something simple. It could be starting a conversation with a stranger. It could be you know standing up and giving a presentation to your colleagues. Um, whatever whatever those things are, um, try something that frightens you. And then, um, and then feel what it feels like to accomplish it, uh, because it's going to feel good. Maybe not during it, <laughs> okay, but after it, you're gonna be like, oh my gosh, I just did something that I that that scared me, and I'm you know, and it was horrible, but I did it, right? So, so that's how you do it. You have to kind of practice that. Yeah, and I'm I'm here and be mindful about it, right? You step mm, into that, yeah. and you, you get to. that, yeah. you get that. Yeah. I don't know that that dopamine. Yeah, because again, you know, there is the flight. There's the flight response, and and that means you know that's also that's also na- nature's way of saying, hey, some things you have to run from, right? It's never a good idea to fight a bear, um, so you have to you have to assess risk, and sometimes the right decision is to flee. Um, it's not always to step in. <laughs> so. Yeah, yeah, good point. Rich, what's your uh, what's your strongest attribute? Would you say of the twenty five? Oh wow, I've never gotten that question. Um, <laughs> that's a great one. My strongest attribute, um, uh, gosh, I would say, I would say I'm pretty good on perseverance. That's pretty strong, and I would say I'm um, pretty good on discipline. Um, and I'm not. That's not self-discipline. It's this uh, discipline I write about is the ability to set and move towards and achieve long-term goals, which is different than self-discipline. Self-discipline is the ability to do that, but the the external world has no say in it, right? I mean, so like if I want to eat healthier, lift weights um, every day, right? The ex- I, I can decide to do that. The external world has no say in what, whether or not I accomplish that. I mean, if I say I'm going to eat healthy and I go to the Vegas buffet, the, the buffet is not going to throw pastries at me. It's my decision right. as to whether I, right? And so, so self-discipline is separate. Discipline, and, and it often requires, self-discipline often, you know, implies some structure, some certainty and some, some rules and things, some, you know, stability, right? Um, which is why I'm bad at it. I did the self-introspection and I realized I'm bad at self-discipline, but I'm good at overall discipline. Overall discipline are those goals that the external world has a say in, right? So you, you, you start moving towards it and the external world is going to have a say, which means you're going to have to adapt and flex and kind of move and flow. And a lot of times the plan you had before is going to go out the window, right? Which I'm actually really good when that happens. Um, um, so I'm pretty good at that. The best balance is to have both, right? But oftentimes mm. you'll see someone who's, well, I would say oftentimes, sometimes you'll see someone who's incredibly self-disciplined, but they can't, they can't get their long-term goals achieved for anything, right? Um, and sometimes that's because the self-disciplined person needs structure, needs certainty, um, needs a plan, and needs a routine. Um, and nothing about long-term goals involves plans and routine. I mean, it involves, it involves light outlines, but, but it's going, if the external world has a say, you're going to have to adapt. And it's likely that the original plan you had is not going to be the, the plan that gets you to your overall goal. You have to be flexible. You have to be able to break routine. So that's why sometimes people get in trouble there. Mm, it's so helpful that you, how you break the two apart, uh, discipline and self-discipline. And it's, I, it's uh, counterintuitive to hear a Navy SEAL, for me, say I don't have uh, strong self-discipline. <laughs> right, right. You wouldn't think that. Well, again, we're, I mean, some, some guys do. Um, a yeah, lot of guys sure. have a good balance, right? But again, the, the job is, I, I always nickname SEALs as masters of uncertainty. The job mm-hmm. is to be able to drop into uncertain environments and figure that out. And 
And if you're going to drop into any environment, you have to be adaptable. You have to, you, you can make no assumptions, you know, other than, well, you make assumptions, but you can make no certain kind of stated facts about an uncertain environment. You just have to, you have to be able to roll and flex and move and be adaptable. So. Thank you. Good, good advice for all of us. Uh, let's, let's turn the, the, the discussion a little bit. I, I think it's on the same, you know, topic of being resilient, but you, you touched briefly about your transition um, in your, you talk about this in the book about your transition from military life to civilian life and, and that being um, a little bit of a, you know, a difficult time. And I know Tara and I have talked about this and, and Tara, you know, had, I don't know if I want to use the word struggles, but she had her own struggles when she, she left the military. What, with the benefit of hindsight, what advice would you have to somebody right now as they maybe are transitioning out of the military to the civilian life? Yeah, um, I think one of the hardest things for any of us who are transitioning, uh, or one of the things that takes most of is courage, um, because in the military, you are leaving an environment where um, everything's pretty certain. And I know I say that, I mean, you know, Tara, you know, I just said, well, the whole job is you're, 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 you're trained for uncertainty. But we, but we also know that the structure around the job, our paycheck, our medical, all this stuff, all of our life stuff is very certain. Right. It's it's, you know, everything's done for us. So, you know, even even the uniforms, hey, just wear this uniform on this date, check the calendar, you'll be fine. Um, and we have other people who are in the same situation. So so everybody around us is in the same situation. Um, most of us, when we get out, we suddenly realize that we're all by ourselves. <laughs> I mean, there's there's no one we're kind of especially those of us who are kind of forging a new path and trying something different. Um, there's no one really in our situation. There's no one to lean on. There's no, there's, everything is kind of uncertain and, and, and it's going to take a step uh, into our fear. Um, and I think that's what most of us struggle with is this idea that now I'm alone quote, and you're not really alone. You just have to look for people who can support you, but you're certainly alone. You're, you're not, you're alone in your endeavor. There's no, there's no leaning. And so I think that's, I think that's probably the biggest thing that most transitioning service people um, are going to encounter and it's going to take courage. And it's also, I would remind people that, you know, there's a lot of help out there. There's a lot of people, there's a lot of services that help with transitioning vets and, and a lot of people who, who help with funding and things like that. Um, and then also know that, you know, um, you it's, I think the percentages are like, it's 90%. There's a 90% chance uh, or 90% likely that, that the job that you get coming out of the military will not be the same job you're in a year or two after leaving the military, you know, it's going to change. Right. And that's natural too. You, you're, you're coming out of this very certain known environment and you're kind of figuring it out for the first time. So you have to be flexible and know, Hey, I'm going to start this and I'm going to kind of figure it out as I go. And I, I think that's, that, that also takes courage, but I think those are the two things I would say. Mm, yeah. Uh, Rich talk to us about failure. Uh, what is your biggest failure that you're willing to share with us and anything you've learned from it? Yeah, um, I have lots, <laughs> but uh, I'll tell this, and, and this is this is a, a, a conglomeration of failures, and I think it has to do with leadership and, and being in charge. And I think one of the things I found that always kind of uh, bit me in the butt if I didn't think about it was that I, if I lost perspective on the idea that when you're a leader, when you're someone in charge, if you lose the, this this idea, and actually even in human relationships, um, that people judge us on, uh, well, excuse me. We judge ourselves on our intent and others judge us on our behavior, okay? Um, and so if you are, if your intent, if you're not transparent about your intent, um, then your behavior might be misinterpreted and 
and looked at in a completely different <laughs> aspect angle of what you're intending to do, which can be bad. And I, I've made, I made that mistake a few times when I was in my career where I wasn't transparent about my, my intent and I was behaving in a way that was completely in line with my intent, but it was being, it was being interpreted and perceived differently from others who were just seeing the behavior. Um, and so I think in that, that's a good thing to think about in any leadership position, in any relationship, that's a good thing to think about, right? Because, uh, because you have to be uh, transparent about that stuff or else, or else it's going to be misaligned. You're going to get in trouble and you're going to wonder what the heck I, I don't understand. And, the, and it'll, it'll be a hard lesson. So. Thanks for joining us this week. If you enjoyed the podcast, please tell all your friends. If you didn't, Let's just forget this happened and we'll try again next week. Until then, join the revolution to forge metal and connect with us on social media.